Well, let's, let's take a moment of silent prayer, and uh, we'll go to the Lord before we uh, open up His Word and study it tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word. We ask that You enlighten us by it, uh, challenge us by Your truth, that we may uh, go forth from here and have it implanted in our souls and transformed, be transformed by it and that we may be your servants in a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to finish most of chapter 7 of the book of 1 Samuel. But before we get to our passage, let me just spend a few minutes reminding y'all, refreshing your memory of the purpose of the book of Samuel. I say the book of Samuel because I'm, I'm talking about 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Remember, when it was written, it was just one book, and they broke it into two books later when they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, the Septuagint, because the Septuagint with the, with the Greek language has uh, vowels in it, and when you add all the vowels in the Greek language, it makes it that much longer, and so they broke it into two books because it was just uh, more difficult to manage um, as one book. So it's the same text, but two books, which we get from the Septuagint as opposed to one book. My point is, there's a purpose for the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We saw the purpose as being threefold when we uh, started the introduction of the book. The first purpose of the book of Samuel is a historical truth, that we would learn a historical truth. The truth of how the Jewish line of kings was established. The truth of how the monarchy, the Jewish monarchy came to be. The second purpose of the book is a practical truth. The practical truth is that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. We saw Hannah, the mother of Samuel, display this biblical principle which runs through the scriptures, that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. The one who thinks that he is exalted, the arrogant, God humbles. God will humble you if you don't humble yourself. He will humble me if I don't humble myself. God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. That's the practical truth that we see taught in First and Samuel, First and Second Samuel. The third truth, which is the third purpose of the book of Samuel, is a theological truth. It's the truth that God in his sovereignty has chosen a Jewish king to rule on a Jewish throne over a Jewish kingdom forever and ever and ever. He could have chosen an Asian to do this, or an African or a Scandinavian, but he didn't. In his sovereignty, he chose a Semitic line that would come through a Semitic man by the name of Abraham. And so what we see in the book of Samuel is this historical truth, this practical truth, and this theological truth truth. Over the last few chapters, we've been seeing the practical truth and the historical truth unfold as to the practical truth that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. In chapters 5 and 6, we saw God humble the Philistines because they captured the ark. They treated the ark of God as if it were a talisman, similar to how the Israelites did it. But the Philistines took the ark put it next to Dagon, their God, 
and they treated Yahweh as if he were one of their gods. And so God's God, the God of Israel, Yahweh humbled the Philistines by sending a plague, a brutal plague against them. And ultimately they got rid of the ark. They sent it back to Israel. We also saw the concept that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted because in chapter 4 and chapter 6 we saw God humble the Israelites. They They became idolatrous. And in their pride, God oppressed them with the scourge of the Philistines, the Philistines who, who invaded Israel and who were a constant source of conflict with Israel, the Philistines who beat them at the Battle of Aphek that we studied at the beginning of chapter 4. God also humbled the Israelites by killing many of them when they had the audacity to peek into the Ark of the Covenant, and that was an act of pride that they should not have engaged in. That's God humbling the exalted. He humbled the Philistines. He humbled the Israelites. Today we're going to see God exalt the humble. We're going to see the flip side of the coin. We're going to see him exalt the Israelites because today the Israelites will submit to God and they will submit to him alone. So that's the practical truth that we're seeing unfold in the, the book of Samuel. As to the historical truth, we see God. Remember, the historical truth is that how the Jewish monarchy came about, how God moved history so that the Jewish line of kings would be in place. That historical truth we're seeing unfold because God is phasing out the system of authority of the judges and replacing it with the kingly line. When we think of judges, just to refresh your memory with respect to judges, don't think of a judge who sits here, a district judge who sits at the district court here in Gillespie County or a federal judge who sits at the federal court in San Antonio or in Houston or in Dallas with their robe behind the bench. Don't think of a judge like that. The judge of ancient Israel comes from the Hebrew word shafat, and shafat as the verb means to rule, to govern, or to pass judgment. And so when you take the verb shafat and you turn it into a participle meaning the one who shafats, the one who rules, the one who judges, the one who governs, what happens is you had a class of individuals, a class of leaders, as we studied in the book of Judges, who did do what a judge as in our mind does, sitting behind a bench. I'm not saying that they had a bench or they had a robe like our judges. But our judges issue a judgment, and that judgment is binding. That judgment resolves a dispute between two parties, between two civil litigants, or it resolves a dispute between the state of Texas and a defendant who is accused of some criminal activity. That is a dispute that the judge resolves after there's been some some verdict by the jury or if there's no jury trial and the judge makes the determination. Well, the judges back then in the time of Israel, just to remind you of of the history here, the judges did a a ruling like that, a judgment resolving a dispute between parties or adjudicating some criminal matter, but they also ruled. They also governed. So the judges of, of Israel were, yes, like our judge who sits behind the bench and issues a judgment, but they're also like a white herb. They're also like like a deputy or a sheriff or a general 
or a governor all kind of wrapped into one. They didn't have the concept of the separation of powers that we have where we have the judicial branch and, and the executive branch that enforces the laws and the legislative branch that, that creates the law. For the judge of ancient, of ancient Israel, they did all, th- all of those except they didn't create the law because the law had already been created by Yahweh himself. Here's what's happening in the book of Samuel. From the historical truth of how the judges came to be, excuse me, how the kings came to be, how the monarchy came to be, what God is doing is he is phasing out 300 years of the judges. Because remember, as we studied the book of Judges, it's a time period of 300 years, and the last of the judges is a man by the name of Samuel. Samuel is... God has has raised up and is continuing to raise up Samuel as the last of the judges to to transition 300 years of authority concentrated in this office of judge and transition it over to the office of king. God is doing this not abruptly because God is a God of order. And so he's doing it gradually and consistently through a kingmaker who he is raising up a man by the name of Samuel who is a judge, the last of the judges, as I say. What we're seeing at the beginning of 1 Samuel is God raising up his kingmaker. He's creating gravitas. He's creating credibility in Samuel. So when Samuel comes in and says, this is the king that God has selected, people will say, oh, Samuel said it? Must be true. Otherwise, someone comes up and says, God selected that king if... if that person who anoints the king has no credibility as being able to speak for God, that's just going to create a civil war. Because some people are going to say, yeah, I believe it. I believe that that person spoke for God. And others are going to say, that's hogwash. That person's not speaking for God. So what's happening at the beginning of 1 Samuel is God is creating credibility and gravitas in this man named Samuel. Because he's making him a kingmaker. He will first anoint Saul and then ultimately David, which is where this book, the book of Samuel, is marching towards. What God is doing is he is replacing the existing line of authority through Eli and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He's removing that line and he's replacing it with the king that Samuel will anoint. God is giving Samuel credibility over and against the existing corrupt authority of Eli and his sons. That's why the book starts with this supernatural birth. Right? Samuel is a product of a supernatural birth. His mother is barren. That's why the book starts with a contrast between Hophni and Phinehas, who the text describe as worthless sons of Belial, Belial being a title later in the New Testament for the devil himself. That's why the text describes the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, as worthless but it portrays Samuel as godly. The mother of Samuel is portrayed as a godly woman, where the father of Hophni and Phinehas is portrayed and described as someone who participated even in in his son's ungodliness. That's the background. That's the context here as we continue through chapter 7 of the book of 1 Samuel. Our passage today begins with verse 4. But just by way of of background, let me start with verse 3. Chapter 7, 
verse 3 reads like this. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. As we saw last time, Samuel here was assuring the people that God would deliver them from the scourge of the Philistines if they would. What's the condition? What's the condition in verse 3? Return. If they would return, which is the Hebrew word shuv, which is another way of saying repent. Shuv technically means turn back. They needed to repent or turn back to God because God is completely and absolutely exclusivistic. This is what makes the Christian such a pariah in the modern culture. It's okay if you talk about God. It's okay if you, 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 you talk about God in general. But the minute you talk about Jesus and you say that Jesus is the only way to God, you've now thrown a bomb on the table. The minute you say that Jesus is the only way to God, because what you've done is you've made an exclusivistic claim for Jesus and you've poked the eye of the person, of the culture, because the culture wants many gods. The culture's okay worshiping Jesus as long as we get to worship the other gods too, other gods, little g. And so what Samuel says in verse 3 is worship Yahweh alone because Samuel is presenting an exclusive, an exclusivistic view of the God who is because God tolerates no rivals. Really what Samuel is reminding the people is the age-old principle. It's the age-old principle that obedience always precedes blessing. Without obedience to God, there is no blessing. You may think that God is blessing you, but he's not if you're in disobedience, if you're in rebellion. The Israelites understood and obeyed Samuel's instruction. Look at verse 4. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served Yahweh alone. Baal is the chief Canaanite god. That's the god that the Israelites adopted and added to their worship. Sure, they worshiped Yahweh, no question. But they also also worshiped the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Baal was the god of fertility and he was a storm god. And so the storms that he would bring were part of a, a, a fertility worship, like fertility for crops. They live in a semi-arid region, not unlike the hill country, and they go, like us, for months without rain. And so what the Israelites did, because Yahweh, it didn't rain, they said, well, look, we're supposed to follow Yahweh. We know that Moses said in the law to follow Yahweh. We'll follow Yahweh, but we'll also, we'll, we'll kind of hedge a little bit. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll pray to Yahweh, and we'll pray to the Canaanite God, because maybe the Canaanite God knows something that we don't know. Maybe the Canaanites know something that we don't go that we don't know. And so look at this image here of Baal. This is an ancient an ancient relief of Baal and you see in his left hand he has a spear. It's tough to see this, but you see the the sharp end of the spear here. There's a spear and in the on the on the upper end of the spear the spear is sprouting like a tree that would sprout because he's He's a rain god. He's a storm god. And he can make, he make just regular dead wood sprout into vegetation. 
Look at his right hand. He, he's carrying a weapon in his right hand as if he's raising the weapon to control the storm with his weapon. This is the imagery of Baal. Then you have the Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a Canaanite goddess. And so this is an image of the Ashtoreth. And this is the, the, the an outline of a, of, of a female body because they used a female body to represent this goddess who was one of the wives of Baal. She was the goddess of war and love and fertility. What I want you to see in these images of these gods that the Canaanites worshipped and ultimately that the Israelites adopted as part of their worship is that they're based on human forms, right? A human form, the outline of a woman's body or the, the, the human form of a man. Here's what happens. The human mind, the broken, fallen human mind, in our vanity and pride, what we do is we deify ourselves. We deify humanity when we imagine God. We imagine God as a souped-up version of us, as kind of humanity on steroids, bigger, more powerful. That's why, that's why Hollywood loves the superhero movies. Because the superhero movies are very attractive to a culture that views God as simply a magnified version of us. Uh, Look, you want to watch a Marvel movie? I'm not telling you not to watch a Marvel movie. I'm just telling you that the culture loves this idea and imagines God as a souped-up version of us. We do it today. They did it in their paganism and in their idolatry back thousands of years ago the reality is god is nothing like us god is not a magnified version of humanity because when god reveals himself what does he do he limits himself right he veils his power he veils his authority he comes as a man who can be spit on who can be punched who can be brutalized he restricts his authority his power his deity i'm not saying he removed his deity I'm saying he limited his, de- his deity. That's who God is. God is a God who humbles himself. But sadly, in idolatry, humanity imagines God in this vain, prideful way. In verse 4, the Baals and the Ashtoreth are in the plural. Just like we saw the plurality of them in verse 3. It's meaning that the Israelites had multiple versions, multiple images of the Ashtoreth or Baal. In repentance, what they do is they put their false gods away and they serve God only. The reason that they hadn't been serving God exclusively is because they had an authority problem. This is what happens in idolatry. The reason a culture worships multiple gods and refuses to worship the exclusivistic God, whether it was the culture of Israel, because This is the condition of Israel. They're polytheistic at this time. That's why Samuel is calling them to turn away from all their other gods and worship alone. That's what it says, only Yahweh. But the reason why a culture, whether it was ancient Israel or the United States of America in the year 2022, the reason why a culture is polytheistic and refuses to only submit to the living God is because... We have an authority problem. It always, always, always boils down to authority. You see, if I get to pick 
the God who I worship, if I get to pick who God is and who God is not, then I'm God. I, I said that wrong. No, I'm not God. I'm bigger than God. I'm superior to God because I got to pick who he was. And then I get to unpick who he is. That's the problem with a polytheistic culture because a polytheistic culture has an authority problem. The psalmist makes this authority issue very clear in Psalm 83. Psalm 83 verse 13 reads like this, Oh my God. That's not an OMG in a text. This is, Oh my God. He is crying out to his God. Oh my God, make them, the them there are the rebels, the rebels who are against God. Make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Yahweh. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perished. Here we go, verse 18. That they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. The reason why we make things more important than the living God is because we do not believe that Yahweh is the most high over all the earth. It's because we have an authority problem. And sometimes we make things that are more important to God, we do it in a very subtle way. Because the culture sells it to us in a very subtle way. The most dangerous of all the idols are the idols that you can't see and touch and feel. I'm not talking about the Virgin Mary or, or a, a, a little image of Jesus that hangs from a taxi cab's window or a, a, from, his, from his rearview mirror. I'm talking, those are obvious idols. The more dangerous idols are the ones that are subtle, that are intangible. Idols like sex or power or money or entertainment or leisure idols that our culture frequently sells us. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4, God has broken the Israelites of their pride and of their authority problem. Keep reading. Verse 5 reads like this. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. We've seen this map a number of times. This is the last time we'll see it. Remember, this is the map that shows the, the travels of the ark from the, the first loss of the battle in, in, at the Battle of Afek. And what I want to focus on here is, right now the ark, the ark is at Kiriath, uh, at, at Kiriath here, and Samuel is talking about Mitzpah. He's gathering the, the people here at Mitzpah, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem, but the Jer- Jerusalem at this time is not controlled by the Jews. It's controlled by the Jebusites. Jerusalem won't be the capital of Israel until David comes along and takes Israel and makes, excuse me, takes Jerusalem and makes it the capital of, of the land of the Jews. Mitzpah was sometimes used as a central meeting place before Jerusalem was Jewish. Once Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, Jerusalem is, the, is the, the central meeting place for the Israelites. But until that time, Mitzpah was often used as a meeting place for Israel. We saw that in Judges chapter 20, verse 1. That's the last time we've, we've seen Mitzpah. Remember in Judges chapter 20, verse 1, 
where the 11 tribes gather as to what to do about the, the tribe of Benjamin for the, the great wickedness that they had engaged in. We'll see Mitzvah again later in 1 Samuel when Samuel gathers the, the tribes there, gathers the people there to present Saul as the first king of Israel. Keep reading in verse 6. They gathered to Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mitzvah. What we're seeing here in this verse is intense remorse. This phrase, poured out water before Yahweh. It appears that this activity of pouring out Yahweh before the Lord was something that symbolized intense weeping in the face of helplessness. We see the same activity, the same phrase in Lamentations 2, where God judged the people by giving them over to the invading Babylonians. And you see this image of the people bawling incessantly, bawling uncontrollably in the face of the invasion. Jeremiah says this in Lamentations 2.11, My eyes, he's speaking of himself, My eyes fail because of tears. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's a reference to Jerusalem. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, remember when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem, it was this brutal, brutal affair, and the the children died of starvation, and there was even cannibalism where parents ate their children because they were under this, this horrid, horrid siege by the Babylonians. Keep reading verse 17. Yahweh has done what he purposed. He has exalted the might of your adversaries, the Babylonians. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the, of the daughter of, of Zion. That's a reference to Jerusalem again. Let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. And there's our phrase. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. What we're seeing in our passage in verse 6 of chapter 7 of 1 Samuel is this intense remorse, this intense suffering, along with repentance, along with confession. Right? We saw confession in verse 6. We have sinned against Yahweh, they say in verse 6. We saw repentance in verse 4 where they removed their false gods and served Yahweh alone. But we're also seeing this weeping and this remorse and grief. As we studied last time, repentance is not the same as remorse. Repentance is not the same as sorrow. Repentance is a change of mind that produces a change in the person regardless of remorse. There may be remorse, there may not be remorse. That's not repentance. Repentance is about a change of mind that it produces a change in the person. For the unbeliever, repentance produces a change from unbelief to belief. For the believer, repentance produces a change from sin, sinning, to turning from the sin. To be sure, God often pricks our conscience to bring about repentance. But the key is confession, which is recognition of wrongdoing, and repentance Sorrow, God can use sorrow to lead us to repentance, as we studied last time where the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. But the key is confession, which is acknowledgement of wrongdoing before the Lord, 
and repentance, which is a turning about, a changing of mind that brings a change of behavior. Here we're seeing all three. Confession, repentance, and remorse. Look at the end of verse 6 where it says, And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mitzpah. Samuel is doing the activities of a judge. He's resolving disputes, and he's also leading the people. Keep reading in verse 7. The beginning of verse 7 reads like this, Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. The Philistines hear that there's this great, large gathering of the Israelites at Mizpah, and, and they want to attack, they want to strike, either because they're threatened, because all the Israelites are gathering, or because they see it as an opportunity to take many of them out. Keep reading in verse 7. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. We've seen the Israelites' fear of the Philistines before, right? The Philistines have iron weapons. The Israelites don't. And so the Philistines have, we could say, better technology, better military technology than the Israelites. And some of the Philistines are actually giants. Remember, David will fight and kill Goliath, who's a Philistine. He's a giant. This is part of what brings them to repentance in verses 3 and 4. It's that they're afraid it's that they're fearful of the enemy. They're fearful of what the Philistines will do. Keep reading in verse 8. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to Yahweh, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Here we see that the Israelites learn their lesson. They don't say, Go bring the Ark of the Covenant. They tried that at the Battle of Aphek, and that was an abysmal disaster. They bring the ark, and when they bring the ark, the first day of the battle, they lose quite a bit. And then when they bring the ark, they think, okay, now we've got the magic of the ark. Now we're really going to win. And then they lose that second day exponentially worse than the first day. That's in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 4. They don't do that here. They don't do that here. They don't ask for a mag- what they think is a magic symbol. The ark was never designed as a magic symbol. The ark was designed as the throne of God, to symbolize the throne of God and his presence among the Israelites, but they don't call for the ark. They call for Yahweh because they put their trust in Yahweh and in Yahweh alone. Keep reading. Verse 9 reads like this. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and 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 Yahweh answered him. Notice that Samuel is sacrificing a lamb. A young lamb. And this probably means that the tabernacle has been moved to Mitzpah because he's doing a sacrifice there at Mitzpah. Keep reading verse 10. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. Verse 11. The men of Israel went out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Beth Car. Samuel prays for the nation here in the face of a serious, terrifying threat, the Philistines attacking them as they had attacked before. And what God does is he grants Samuel's prayer, and he grants it in a spectacular, supernatural way. He doesn't just allow the Israelites to defeat them, But God displays his power 
through thunder, through this supernatural storm. What God is doing here is giving Samuel the authority for the nation to believe that Samuel speaks on behalf of God because Samuel will soon tell the people who God has chosen for king. And the people will need confidence that Samuel is, in fact, authorized to speak for Yahweh. Look at the middle of verse 10 where it says, Yahweh thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines so that they were routed, they were destroyed. What Yahweh's doing is by delivering victory in this spectacular way, he is validating Samuel's words back from verses 3 and 4. If you will put away your foreign gods, if you will serve Yahweh alone, because he's an exclusivistic God, then Yahweh will deliver you. And so what Yahweh is doing here is he is displaying the, the deliverance, the victory. He's validating Samuel's word. Yahweh routed the Philistines in this spectacular, supernatural way by showing that Baal is a no-god. The Baal, who is the weather god of the Canaanites, is powerless. And instead it is Yahweh who actually controls the storm, who controls the thunder. Keep reading verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far Yahweh has helped us. Ebenezer means literally in the Hebrew stone of help, meaning this is the stone, this is the place of God's help. And so it's the stone of Yahweh's assistance. Samuel made this monument to remember God's deliverance, to remember God's salvation. This is the new Ebenezer. Remember in chapter 4, verse 1, the Israelites gathered and they camped at Ebenezer. They camped at Ebenezer in chapter 4, verse 1, and the Philistines camped at, uh, at, at, at a different spot near Ebenezer. And they, excuse me, they camped at, the Philistines camped at Aphek, and the Israelites camped at Ebenezer. The battle was at Aphek, and it was a total disaster for the Israelites. That was the first Ebenezer. This is the second Ebenezer. This Ebenezer is where the Israelites destroyed the Philistines and they demolished them through the power of God. It's where the spiritual leaders, the second Ebenezer, it's where the, the, they had a new spiritual leader, Samuel. Remember the first Ebenezer where they lost in chapter 4, they had different spiritual leaders. It was Hophni and Phinehas, the worthless men who brought the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh to the battlefield at, at Aphek. And it's no surprise that that turned out to be a complete disaster and Hophni and Phinehas themselves were killed. God is using Samuel to bring about a new order in Israel, to bring about the end of the 300-year period of the judges and to bring about a new line of authority. Keep reading verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Here's what happened in verses 13 and 14. God's deliverance of the Israelites was so overwhelming that the Israelites are able to reclaim lost territory. They even 
butt up against the cities of the Philistines, the city of Ekron and Gath. So there are Israelites town, the Israelite towns here it, uh, along the, kind of this, this frontier area. The, the main Philistine cities are Ekron, Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and then below that is Gaza. Well, as you can see, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza, they're off kind of on the coast. They're farther away from, the, from their enemy Israel. Ekron and Gath are kind of border cities. And so what, what we're learning here in these verses is that the, 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 the victory from God was so decisive that the Israelites were able to come back in here and claim not Ekron and Gath, they still belong to the Philistines, but Israelite cities that are near those Philistine, those major Philistine cities. What's also happening is you see the last sentence of verse 14. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. The Amorites are not the Philistines. These are different groups. Both groups settled in Canaan, but the Philistines come from the Sea Peoples, from kind of in the, in, the, in the area of Greece and north of Greece. They come from the west, where the Amorites come from the east. The Amorites were really from ancient Babylon. The Amorites migrated from ancient Babylon, and, and maybe one of the most famous of all the Amorites was a king, an Amorite king named Hammurabi, where, you know, we have the code of Hammurabi. Well, he was an Amorite king, and the Amorites king, Amorite kings reigned in Babylon for some period of time, the ancient Babylon, not the, not the more modern Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar, we're talking, um, you know, we're talking 2000 B.C., uh, kind of in that range where you have ancient Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is, is 600 B.C., so many centuries later. My point is this. The Amorites are different than the Philistines. And what God is doing here is he is creating such a strength, such a, a significant victory for the Israelites that the word gets out. The Scripture often uses Amorites interchangeably with Canaanites because the Amorites were, were one of the first groups who came and settled in the land of Canaan. So when you see this statement at the end of verse 14 that the Amorites, that there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, what we're seeing is peace through military victory. The way you discourage an enemy is you're strong, you're mighty, your military is powerful, and they fear you. That's the way we used to do it. It's a shame we don't do it that way anymore. But that's the way a wise country does it. What God is doing is he is protecting Israel. And what he's, the way he's doing it is he gave such a devastating defeat of the Philistines that not only the, will the Philistines not bother Israel, we see for the rest of the judgeship of Samuel. That's what we see here in verses 13 and 14. That's what it says during the time of Samuel. Not only do the Philistines not bother the Israelites anymore, but the Amorites say, hey, we're not going to mess with you either. There wasn't conflict recorded here between Israel and the Amorites, but the Amorites, used interchangeably for the Canaanites in the Scripture, they've heard of the God of Israel, how he has destroyed the Philistines, and so they themselves stand back and do not bother the Israelites during this time period. What I want you to see 
is how God is fulfilling the prayer of Samuel's mother. Remember Samuel's mother, Hannah? She's barren in, in chapter 1. She's mocked by the, the other wife of, uh, of her husband who has children. And so Hannah prays to God, even though her womb is barren. And what we're seeing is God fulfill that prayer. Her prayer, if you'll turn back to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, her prayer is a prayer that is prophetic. Her prayer is a prayer where she is asking God to bring a revival to Israel. Hannah's prayer is echoing through the life of her son Samuel because God is using her son to bring a revival to the nation which is really what she was praying about. Remember, Hannah asked for a son not just so that she wouldn't be barren. She didn't want to be barren anymore. That's part of the reason why she asked for a son. But she asked that God give her a son to dedicate him, to dedicate the boy to God. And so with her husband's approval, she dedicated Samuel to the Lord to serve at the tabernacle as soon as he was weaned. After she, she dedicates her boy and leaves her boy there at the tabernacle, In Shiloh, she prays this prayer in chapter 2, verse 1. It reads like this. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So what we see there is that Hannah relied on Yahweh for deliverance, for salvation from her enemies, like his mother before him. Samuel turned to Yahweh for deliverance. That's why in chapter 7, he told Israel, if you will turn to Yahweh, he will deliver you from the Philistines. Keep reading in chapter 2, verse 2. Hannah says, there is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Hannah acknowledges the exclusivity of God. So Samuel, like his mother before him, relied exclusively on Yahweh. In chapter 7, he told Israel, abandon your false gods and serve Yahweh alone. Keep reading in verse 2 of chapter 2. Hannah says, nor is there any rock like our God. You see, Hannah declared the immutability of God, the unchangingness of God. Immutability is, is the steadfastness of God. The reason immutability matters to us, to the child of God, is it means that God is trustworthy because if if God flip-flops like we do sometimes, then we shouldn't trust Him. We can't rely on Him. This This is the problem with the Israelites. They're not, they don't believe in the steadfastness of God, in the immutability of God, so they hedge and they put a little bit, a little bed over here, and a little bed over here. Let's pray to Yahweh, but let's also pray to the gods of the Canaanites, because they don't view God as reliable and trustworthy. Samuel is insisting on the trustworthiness of God to the Israelites in chapter 7. Through Samuel, Israel came to accept the reliability and the immutability, the the trustworthiness, the steadfastness of Yahweh. Remember chapter 7, verse 8, the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to Yahweh, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
Israel turned to Yahweh to trust in him alone because you can't trust in Yahweh or if we want to speak in our modern culture you can't trust in Yahweh in the flesh you can't trust in Jesus and also trust in other things that you have made God you're not trusting in the Jesus who is because the Jesus who is 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 exclusive is exclusivistic and what was happening in Israel is they were not trusting in Yahweh because you can't trust in Yahweh and other gods also. You're trusting in someone who is not Yahweh, in a being, in a person who is not Yahweh because Yahweh is absolutely exclusivistic. Remember Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. The scripture describes Yahweh as jealous, as a jealous God, meaning he tolerates no rivals, no rivals. He tolerates no rival gods. He tolerates no rival worship. Keep reading in chapter 2, verse 3. Hannah says, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge. He knows. He's omniscient. And with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. You see, Hannah believed the divine principle that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. And like his mother before him, Samuel proclaims this principle to the Israelites. In chapter 7, he said, Return to Yahweh. Direct your hearts to Yahweh. Serve Yahweh alone. And so through Samuel, Israel gets it. They get the point, and they humble themselves before Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 6, we read, They gathered to Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against Yahweh. Yahweh. They humbled themselves, in other words, before Yahweh. Finally, jump down to verse 9 of chapter 2. Here Hannah says, He keeps the feet. Yahweh keeps the feet of His godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail, Hannah says. Those who contend with Yahweh will be shattered. Against them He will... What? Somebody read it for me. Thunder, thunder in the heavens. This is exactly what Yahweh did in response to Samuel's prayer, right? In in chapter 7, verse 10, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but Yahweh thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. What we are seeing is God give gravitas and credibility to, to Samuel because he is raising a kingmaker so that the people will have confidence when Samuel speaks that Samuel is speaking on behalf of God. He's creating this confidence and credibility in Samuel. Samuel prays for deliverance because the people repent and God delivers it and God delivers it in spades. God delivers it exponentially displaying that the God God, little g, that the Israelites had been worshiping Baal is a mockery and has no power over storms. It is the God who is. It is the God of Israel, Yahweh, who has the power over thunder, who has the power over military victory, who has the power to humble the exalted and to exalt the humble. We'll continue to see this as it unfolds through Samuel. Samuel when we gather together next time, ultimately is going to be confronted with a situation from the Israelites 
where they want a king. There's nothing wrong with a king. God prophesied in the law that there would be a king. The problem is that they wanted a king who was not like the king who God wanted. They wanted a king like all the other nations. That You'll see that phrase, like the other nations. They didn't want God's king. They wanted a king who would do what the kings of the other nations would do. And so Samuel, just a preview of coming attractions, Samuel will warn them because God will tell Samuel, if you want a king like the other nations, he's going to do this, and you're not going to like it. And he's going to do that, and you're not going to like it. And he's going to do this, and this, and this. And you're not going to like any of those things. And the people say, so what? We want a king like all the other nations. This is what will happen as these chapters unfold, beginning with chapter 8 next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us by your truth. We ask that you give us rain. We know, you know that our land is, is parched and, and, and des- in desperate need for rain. We thank you for the firefighters that, who, uh, who attack these fires and, and get them under control. We ask that you continue to, to protect them. And we ask that you provide us the rain that, that you knew from eternity past that we would need now. We ask that you protect us, give us a safe trip home. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.